Hi, this is Bishop James Wall, and welcome to Crozier Cast from the Diocese of Gallup. And today our special guest is Father Matthew Keller. Father Keller serves as the rector at the Cathedral of the Sacred Heart, and he also serves as Vicar General, one of the two vicar gen- Vicars General in the Diocese of Gallup. And so, Father, welcome to Crozier Cast. Thank you. Good morning, Bishop. So I thought one of the things that we would talk about today is something that's been in the news quite a bit lately, and that is this uh, recent study, this recent CARA study, which comes out every you know five, ten years, or I don't know how they do it. But um, the numbers that came out this year were, were fairly alarming, and the numbers that they said were 69, 70% of Catholics questioned about the true presence of the Eucharist, 69 or 70% of them either didn't understand or, or didn't believe in the true presence. And then when you look at millennials, that goes up about 5%, which is pretty alarming because I think over the years we've seen that number go up and up and up. And first of all, I question, who do they ask? Somebody identifies themselves as Catholic. Are they you know, CEO, Christmas and Easter only? Um, are they somebody who's kind of hit and miss with their Sunday mass attendance? Are they Sunday mass attendance goers? Or are they weekday mass attendance goers? Because I think about, at least in our cathedral, um, we make a point of talking about the true presence quite a bit. And um, our, our, our daily mass attendees, 100% would they talk about the, the true presence. Right. And the, the other thing is we have so many, so many options uh, in our parish and, and nearby for Eucharistic adoration. So we, you know, we do uh, adoration twice a week, once with solemn vespers, once on Thursday nights, and then just a block and a half away, uh, we have the Perpetual Adoration Chapel. So there's a lot of bolstering uh, up for us of, of Eucharistic uh, adoration and, and the presence of our Lord. So I think uh, that helps us locally a, a bunch. But yeah, it's hard to it's hard to uh, deal with you know that kind of a, a description of people's faith. And I've heard before when you know it was a matter of people not being able to like just clearly articulate it, which doesn't necessarily mean that you know they don't believe it. Um, but it is important for them to, to know, right, the truth. Our Lord says the truth will set you free. So it's for them to, to know and understand the Eucharist as well as to, as Jesus says, to be able to, to know him there, right, to, and that as the church, you know, recognize him in the breaking of the bread, in the Eucharist, and, and so we have a relationship with him in the Eucharist. Uh, that's obviously the main thing that we want to have is that uh connection with Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And it's, it's, I really wonder, uh, how empty your faith would feel without that, uh, sure. without that connection. So it, it, it's alarming, as you said. Yeah. You always hear stories about people who have maybe fallen away from their faith and, and when they come back, you know, we call them reverts as a, you know, as, as opposed to somebody who's a convert and they'll, I think nine times out of 10, they'll say, what I missed or what I longed for was the Eucharist because, you know, we can't say any other way that Jesus is present as he is in the Eucharist because he's substantially present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so you hear, you hear things of that, of people talking about that. Um, I remember when I was a pastor in Phoenix, there were a couple mothers who were daily communicants and they would bring their children. They both had boys and they would bring them to mass. And I remember one of the guys same as Blaze in particular, 
he's three, four years old. Every once in a while, every week or every couple of weeks when he'd come up, his mother would receive. You know, little guys always want to receive, but his mother would receive. And that little guy would always say, Jesus. Wow. And I know that that was, you know, his parents taught that to him. They were very faithful Catholics, and they, they taught that to him. So I don't think it's, it's never too early. They're never too young to start catechizing little ones. And as they grow up, we hope by the time they hit the age of reason, they have a very clear understanding that it's, you know, truly Jesus present to them in the Eucharist. And as we say, you know, it's a mystery. Uh, not meaning that we just don't throw our hands up and say, ah, it's a mystery. But it's a mystery meaning we'll never exhaust it. We can always go back to that well and, and drink from that well and come to know and to love and appreciate the Eucharist more and more throughout our lives. Um, I think I think one of the things, too, that has an impact on that is some of the faulty teaching of our um, our separated brothers and sisters in the faith. It's, Pope Benedict referred to them as a Christian ecclesial communities, right? And so I was, you know, was thinking about that. And, you know, you have the teaching like the consubstantiation from the Lutherans, where Luther would say that um, uh, the, the, body, uh, the body and blood of Jesus is present and also the bread and wine is present, that they remain somehow present right. together. Yeah, and I think, I think their notion would also be that it was simply during the time that they were celebrating sure. Eucharist. And yeah, and also they would say something exactly, I think, as you were articulating there, that Jesus is present in the bread or in the wine, yeah. right? Not that they that those things are transformed, right? Sure. So there's not a transubstantiation. Sure. You don't change into something sure. else. Their you idea have, is that Jesus, two is, yeah, it's like Jesus walked into a, a room. Yeah, well, it doesn't change the room as such. Sure. He's just in there, and then when he leaves the room, the you know the room is still what it was before he came there. And that's not what we believe about the Eucharist at all. No, no, and that's I think when you have these erroneous teachings, I think they start to yeah. to um, affect uh, some of our Catholics, and so I think we need to be very clear about you know what it is we do. And then one of the uh, the reformers too was Zwingli. And I think the Baptist tradition is the ones that uh, come out of them. And really, there's a there's a complete denial of any form of the physical or the spiritual presence of Christ in the bread and wine. And it's simply for them, simply a remembrance. It's right. memorialism, it's only. which they don't understand that term remembrance. The time of our Lord, speaking of the term remembrance, meant to be truly present. And I think we take that modern sense and we say, it's just something I'm calling to mind. And the other thing is that we don't use uh, empty words, and our Lord didn't, right? Uh, he said, this is my body, which will be given up. In other words, the same body that will hang on the cross tomorrow sure. is right here now, right? This is the chalice of my blood, uh, which will be shed for you. The same blood that was shed for you sure. is in the chalice. And so there's, it's, you know, that we just take our Lord at his word. We're not... He had the, uh, yeah, he had the, simply uh, the ordinary understanding of Jesus' of spirit plain and life, words. right? Yeah. To whom shall we go? You have the words of spirit right. and life. He's, and he sets them up for the for the Last Supper in John's Gospel, chapter 6. My body's true food, my blood is true drink. And he uses a term. I love this. Anytime we're having a, our, um, we have 125 trains that roll through each day. <laughs> we're right on Route 66, you know. Uh, the famous get your kicks on Route 66. And you remember the Gallup, New Mexico. We actually have the state uh, that's that's uh, represented. 
So right across the street from us is a place where they have to blow the horn. So lucky us. <laughs> so um, going back to that, Jesus sets, sets them up. And he doesn't say it just once. He says it twice and three. He goes over and over and over. I don't know how he could be any clearer with his words. Right? And the people that didn't accept it left him at yeah. that moment. And he didn't chase after him. In fact, he told his apostles, you know, will you also leave me? Uh, if you know, if you don't accept uh, my words, then you know, in a sense, there's the door. Yeah, yeah. To whom shall we go? Right. Yeah. Saint Peter says that. the beautiful, beautiful words that Saint Peter uh, mentions. Um, you know, we uh, we also have. You know, John Calvin was a big, a big a part of the reformers. Um, and you know, a, a friend of mine, Joseph Smith, or Joseph Smith. Joseph Pierce, Joseph Pierce, Joseph Smith is the founder of the Church of Latter-day Saints. But Joseph Pierce um, wrote a book on the Catholic Reformation. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joseph Pierce himself is a a convert to the faith. He wrote a beautiful book, an incredible book. It's a page-turner called Race with the Devil, From Racial Hatred to Rational Love. It's his own uh, conversion story. But he he, he has the premise that um, of the Reformers... You know, if we look at Zwingli and Calvin and Luther and, and um, somewhat, I guess, somewhat the Anglican Church with Henry VIII kind of re- usurping the power of the Holy Father. And then you have the, the, the reform within the church. He says the only true reform took place in the church right. because the other ones are, are uh, a revolt. You know, right, they're, rebellions. Yeah, the rebellions, they're denying, they're denying the truths of the church. And with the Reformation in the church, true Reformation, they were cleaning up some of the abuses that were taking place. But the truth, um, it, it never, it never is is changed. So you know, with John Calvin, um, out of his the tradition of the Reformed and the Presbyterian Christian communities or ecclesial communities come, and really, for Calvin, is the belief is Christ is not literally present, but rather he's spiritually present. And those who receive the elements with faith can receive the actual body and blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is referred to as uh, receptionism. Right. And another problem with that is the idea that spirit, uh, that spiritual things are not real things. Sure. And that's a a very, you know, so there's a a philosophical problem there to begin with. And so, you know, then you start to parse it out. And and so for them, spiritual means symbolic only, right? That it's not real. And that's the whole difference between you know, the Catholic view of a sacrament is that, uh, you know, it's something that actually accomplishes what it symbolizes, sure. right? So the, the symbol uh, has value and, and uh, you know, a sacrament is a real encounter with Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, guaranteed, you know, yeah. guaranteed encounter. And we are body and soul. So if you say that the spiritual is only, you know, sort of figurative, then you're saying we're only bodies, yeah. right? It, it, it denies uh, a lot of things, and they're not trying to do that, but that's where you, you end it's just, up. Yeah, it's erroneous teaching. Like that. Yeah. yeah, it's erroneous teaching. Right. I think you and I were both present when my mother was giving, so my mother is a convert to the faith, as my dad was a convert to the faith. Um, they converted to the faith uh, at uh, Our Lady of Fatima in Chin Li on the Navajo Reservation. And the interesting kind of side note here is Father Keller and I, our families went to that parish back in the early 60s. Our parents knew one another. We were born in the same hospital in Ganada, Arizona, 10 months apart. Yeah. And um, But we never knew each other. 
and then we also ended up going to the same seminary, not at the same time, but we never knew each other. And then we um, ended up meeting the day of my announcement, and it was just incredible that we have all these these connections uh, with with one another. But um, you know, my uh, your parents are was your was your father always Catholic? Was he a convert? No, both my parents were cradle Catholics. So they're cradle yeah. Catholics. So your parents always had a very very strong belief in the church or teachings, and then in the especially the, the true presence of our Lord. And then my parents later in life came to know that. My mother was a Methodist, my father was nothing, and uh, they both became Catholic, and all when we were going to the, the very same parish, which is which is pretty amazing. Um, you know, and looking at the term receptionism too, you know, one of the problems with it is it places a lot, um, uh, most of the emphasis on the, the recipient's actions, right. rather than uh, the God's, than God's actions. So it, you know, it really undercuts or runs contrary to our Lord's words. It would eliminate the notion of Eucharistic adoration, too. Sure. Right? So where we worship Jesus outside of Mass. Sure. Um, because we reserve uh, our Lord, you know, his body, uh, blood, soul, and divinity in, in the tabernacle. So we have a place to go visit Jesus. And that's why uh, so many people I know who are not Catholic, when I've brought them into Catholic churches, they'll tell me, there's something different about the inside of that church, and, sure. and they can't put their finger on it until I tell them why. You know, like why do we, you know, why do we have so much reverence for a place like that? It's just a building. Well, it's not the building; it's who's in the building. Yeah, and that's what uh, you know. That's what changes the 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 whole tenor. You know, visiting a Catholic church because Jesus is they're present uh, substantially, body and blood, soul and divinity. Well, I mean, think about one of the ladies that works at the cathedral, and she go. worked at the cathedral before she was Catholic. Yeah. And I was talking to her one day about working in the cathedral, and she just absolutely loved her job. And the main reason why she loved her job, because she knew that Jesus was present. And so she was able to work around the true presence of our Lord. During that time, I think the Lord worked on her. She eventually became she Catholic, did, and she's yeah. a rock star when it comes to a Catholic now. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady. So, you know, we're talking about some of the people that are different, different from us, you know, the, the reformers. But, you know, in terms of somebody who is like us, mm -hmm. uh, the one that is like us would be the Orthodox of Church. Course, and, yeah. um, you know, Pope St. John Paul II spoke about um, that we really need to work on that, that the, the kind of healing that rift which took place in the year 1054. And he said, because the church needs to breathe with both lungs, which right. I think is a beautiful image. Um, you even saw Paul VI during his pontificate uh, meeting with uh, the patriarch. And I think they lifted, if I'm, correct me if I'm not wrong, I think they lifted excommunications on one another, which was a good little, good little move. Yeah. Uh, probably went all the way back uh, to around 1054, 11th century. Um, but with the, the, the Orthodox Church, they believe in the true presence of, of the Eucharist as a sacrament. But what they use, they use is they use a term, they say mystery, right? It's a mystery. And they, they use that a lot in terms of their teachings. And again, we go back to mystery. Mystery doesn't mean it's a mystery. I think sometimes people have the perception when, they, when Catholics say it's a mystery, like the Trinity, it's a mystery. Like we throw up our hands and say, I have no idea how to explain this. But rather it means that we can come to know it, but we're not going to exhaust, the, exhaust that knowledge right, right. until we come into the kingdom, right? Right. I mean, yeah, something we can know something about, we just can't know everything about Sure, it, right? sure. Yeah, and I think, we, and that's the other thing too, we never want to stop 
um, we never want to stop uh, studying and studying our Catholic faith. I think there's, in terms of clarity, we want to get just a basic understanding of how to know it and teach it, share it with other people. I think if we go those old Baltimore catechisms, yeah. those things, they cannot be more clear yeah. than, than they are. That's right. And, and yeah, I think one of the lessons that we have to learn it too is that it's not, you know, there are these errors in, in times past and, and, you know, in our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ who are, you know, with, but who we don't have full communion, um, they have an influence on it, but we're the ones responsible for teaching our children. And sure. so that's on us. You know, if, if our children uh, can't, uh, you know, aren't aware of and, and don't know and are familiar with our teaching on the Eucharist, that's really at, at our uh, own doorstep. And so that's, you know, obviously this is a, a action call to, to roll up our sleeves and really take time. And parents are the first teachers sure. of their children. It's got to be at home. And I don't think, we, you know, yes, as we, we as spiritual fathers, we can't talk enough about the Eucharist, the great gift, that, that, uh, that humbling gift that Jesus gives to us. And then as we say on the day of baptism, one of the things we say that the, church, the parents are the primary educators in the way of the faith. And we ask them if they're prepared to fulfill this mission, especially in terms of a child being baptized, other children. And they always say, we are, right? I've mm-hmm. never had anybody say no. No, that's right. And um, so you have a bit of a captive audience. You know, they want that child baptized, which is a good thing. Because yeah, we're only going to have so much access to the child as far as preaching and teaching. Sure. Uh, and, and there again, that gets limited sometimes if the parents will bring uh, the children to Mass. Uh, you know, uh, and, you know, if that's not the absolute priority on Sunday, um, they're going to deprive their children of a lot of teaching. So I was going through some scripture passages. We've already mentioned John chapter six, which is the bread of life discourse, where Lord cannot be any more clear with his words because he says it over and over and over and over. And as you mentioned, some people go away. Uh, The apostles ask the question, Peter does, to whom shall we go? You have the words of spirit and life. So, and then there's you know, thinking about some other words from St. Paul. And, um, you know, Paul encounters Christ after uh, the resurrection. So he doesn't encounter, he's not an apostle. That's why he refers to himself as lesser, right? He's not an apostle. He wasn't able, he wasn't privy to our Lord's th- uh, three years of public ministry. But what he does is he talks about what he received. So we talk about the, the apostolic tradition of the, and the teaching of the church being handed down. So right there, he receives, and I think that shows that, you know, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It shows that it didn't stop with our Lord. It didn't stop with the apostles. It continues to be handed down. It's part of the apostolic tradition of right. the church. So I think when we look at Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 16 to 17, he talks about uh, the cup of blessing that we share, Right. And I think also um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, go back and talk about that institution. And that's the second reading on Holy Thursday. And Holy Thursday is when we celebrate the institution of the priesthood, because the priesthood and the Eucharist are so intimately connected. No priesthood, no Eucharist, right? And so, and then we also talk about the institution of the Eucharist, go back to the Last Supper, and then that's when we have the great mandatum, as right. Jesus gives that, that image of, of service. You know, right. I came uh, to serve and not to be served and offer my life as a ransom for the many. And then, you know, one we haven't talked about yet as well would be the road to Emmaus. Right. 
where Jesus teaches them with the scriptures. He explains all the things. They're going the wrong way. And then, um, and then um, you know, they come to know him, as they say, in the breaking of the bread. Their eyes are open to who, to who it was that was explaining this to them. So Luke's gospel, chapter 24, 13 to 35, Road to Emmaus. I would say all these scriptures um, are things that we can read, we can study. When we read, we can pray over them, use it as Lectio Divina, a holy reading. And again, we can study over them and come to know Jesus. Um, saints that were associated with the, uh, the Eucharist. So, Father, who would you say a saint that, was, that would be associated with the Eucharist? Sure. It, as a priest, of course, uh, the first one that we're going to think of is St. John Marie Biani. Uh, St. John Biani uh, is the model for all priests, and his uh, devotion to the, you know, to the Eucharist and, and the sacraments is just you know, incredible and amazing. Yeah, the first thing he did when he arrived in ours. Celebrate Mass. Celebrate Mass. Yeah. 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 So we have a, a saint that's really special to us in the diocese, St. Kateri or St. Kateri Tikakwitha. Um, and she was uh, Native American. She's the first uh, canonized Native American. And she, um, she would show up early before the first Mass was celebrated, and she would stay at the church until the last Mass was celebrated. And this is upstate New York and then even into Canada. And if you think about what the weather's like in, in, uh, in, uh, in the wintertime, I mean, that was somebody who was very, very devoted. Absolutely. Devoted to, and a great love uh, for the Eucharist. So who else would maybe somebody that, um, that you, would, uh, you would consider? Sure. I'd say more recently, um, a saint that I'm familiar with would be St. Uh, Stanley Rother, who, um, you know, in order to provide the Eucharist for, for the people, uh, defied the, you know, the, the people who were persecuting him in the church. And he wanted to be able to, to provide the Eucharist for his people. And so he suffered death in order to make the sacraments available uh, to the people. He refused to leave his, his, his people, his post. When the, when the, what is it? When the sheep are attacked, the shepherd does not run. That's, That's right. his famous line. He, his bishop called him back to Oklahoma City, Tulsa, called him back and did not want him to go. And that's where he, he makes this famous line, or he even might have wrote, wrote them to yeah. home about Christmas or something. And, uh, but he understood that the people needed to be fed, and, and it was worth sacrificing his life. And, and even when he went there, there were no native vocations, and now I think they're, they're right. exploding with native vocations down there. So he's, he's a special one. St. Tarsisius. Um, third century uh, referred to as a martyr for the Eucharist, protection of the Eucharist. So I think those two, Rother and St. Tarsisius, would go very well because both of them sacrificed their life for the Eucharist. It's right. all related to the Eucharist. One, that, one more maybe that I could throw in there that I'm familiar with uh, would be St. Peter Julian Amar. Yeah. And the reason I know him is because uh, Bishop Palat, uh, he was the founder of his religious order, the Blessed yeah. Sacrament Fathers. And he has some beautiful, beautiful writings. Almost every Eucharistic chapel I've ever been in for adoration um, has that little series of books. Have you seen them? They're yeah. These maroon-bound books by him. Uh, just uh, they just move you to tears in the presence of the Eucharist. And I, I love those. Uh, I love his writings as well. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that at the end. So I, I would say any of our listeners, if you don't know where a uh, 24-hour adoration chapel is, or if you don't know where uh, a church is that might have um, Eucharistic adoration, perhaps during the week. Um, you know, call your local church and ask them if they have one. 
your local parish. And if they don't, ask them if they know who does. And if they don't know who does, maybe do a little search on the Internet or maybe even call the diocesan offices. Somebody might be able to help you, the diocesan offices, because, you know, what a great privilege that we have, that we have the Lord reserved in the Blessed Sacrament, truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and to have times when we can go before him, we can gaze at him, and he can gaze at us. And I would say it's almost like, you know, being out in the sun. Uh, if you stay out in the sun, you, you can get tanned, and eventually you can get burned. Well, you know, go before our Lord and, and, and share in his presence, and and you can allow him to, to allow him to just burn you up, right? Burn you up with the fire of his love so that you can become more like Jesus Christ. Christ who humbled himself and comes to us each day in the Mass uh, in the Eucharist. So, Father, thanks for being our special guest uh, for the first time. Yeah. And as I said, the first time, that means there's going to be a second or third Uh-oh. or fourth time. And so it's probably our first annual, but maybe it's not going to be every year. So um, thanks for being a, a special member or a guest on on um, Crozier Cast, and thanks everyone for listening to Crozier Cast. We try to get a new episode out every week or every two weeks. So, thank you and God bless.